0: This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow, where we hear from commercial real estate players about how the crisis and the fallout has reshaped their jobs and their businesses. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, Angel Robinson-Gaylord, the president of the North American Real Estate Cluster at IKEA. She's talking here about the pivot from big box retail to smaller concept planning stores. The first of this kind of IKEA offering opened in the U.S. last year in Manhattan, and it's known as the IKEA Planning Studio. Angel, who previously worked in property management at McDonald's, is talking here about the shifting of consumer needs and her experience in commercial real estate as an African-American woman as the industry tries to diversify. I started by asking her about workplace culture at IKEA.
1: IKEA is very civil. Uh, They like to make decisions and achieve a a sort of consensus. Uh, IKEA puts the the co-workers uh, in focus, not that McDonald's didn't, but um, there's a very strong emphasis on putting the co-worker in focus at IKEA and that um, additionally there's such a strong uh, commitment to sustainability within IKEA. It's not just words or platitudes, it's actions, uh, purchasing uh, wind farms or or timber. Uh, we have tens of thousands of acres of timber in the U.S. that we're holding not to mine or farm, but just to offset our use globally. So um, those types of things pervade the organization. Um, and everyone is really fun to work with. And I have so many coworkers who started as co-workers in stores and now have grown and advanced. And it's very typical to hear that someone's been with the company 20, 30, 35 years, which is very atypical these days.
0: So when you say there's a focus on the co-worker and everyone's very civil, is it like, is it more meetings and things like that? Because there are cultural (laughs) differences between American and European workplaces.
1: I think probably the, the thing that stood out to me the most when I first joined, and it continues, I've never heard someone raise their voice in IKEA. Never. There's not that sort of, that's just not a part of the corporate culture where everyone, you know, wants to collaborate, wants to be a part of a team. You know, our mission is to make a better everyday life for the many people. And we take that seriously, whether you are a co-worker who is in the store or you're someone who is leading real estate. Uh, we all see that our part part of our duties is to figure out and how to solve the challenges for the many people.
0: Maybe I'm glorifying and deifying Scandinavian culture a little bit here. <laughs> I'm imagining imagining it being very charming and, and, and
1: lots of vacation time. I do get a little jealous of my colleagues who've been with the company for an extended period of time, that uh, the month of July gets a little scarce, where everyone takes their holidays, and we're, we're more used to a, a U.S.-based holiday approach of one or two weeks. Um, it's been certainly a great organization for me to grow and develop in, and it is. It's really a kind, kind culture, and that, that pervades how we make decisions, how we collaborate, how we work together. Um, And it's been, you know, an incredible five and a half years.
0: We'll talk about the um, impact of the pandemic a little bit in the moment, but let's focus a bit on the way that IKEA has shifted in recent years. Of course, you say IKEA, you imagine getting in the car, driving on a highway, going to like this uh, big box location somewhere slightly remote, a full day, maybe an argument with somebody. Hope
1: not, hope not. (laughs) We... um You know, our global CEO, Jesper Brolin, in uh, 2017, announced that we were going to be focusing on 30 global cities, that we wanted to... Everyone um, is quite familiar with that traditional IKEA that's typically out in the suburbs, which we call potato fields. But recognizing that, you know, we have time-pressed lives in our major cities, that people don't have the same amount of time um, to make that journey. And so how do we bring our brand closer to them? And so in those 30 major global cities, there's an ambition to develop a menu of units to be able to meet those customers in a different way. And so we have examples of that in Manhattan. We have our planning studio, uh, which instead of our typical 250 to 300,000 square feet store, it's a 17,000 square foot showroom where you're able to visit and view and interact with the IKEA brand and our range in products, but everything is ordered online and then delivered um, to your home. And um, we also have a, what we call our small store, which is under construction in Queens, New York, at 117,000 square feet. So small for us, big for many others. Um, that's due to open this fall. So we're testing and trying those types of units. Uh, my colleagues around the globe are, are deploying a, you know, a menu of options instead of us having just our standard store. And that's how we're going to be penetrating these additional markets around the U.S. and, and globally.
0: I'm really interested in the idea of how these sorts of conceptual shifts happen in a big company like IKEA. I mean, how did that happen? Did people, I mean, were there lots of meetings where people were like, hey, people don't have the time to shop like they used to. People don't want to go out. People don't have cars. Younger people are living in the cities. How do those kind of big cultural changes happen?
1: I think that it starts at the top. Um, Our new CEO came in and wanted to create a strategy that helps us to meet more of the many people. Um, and so I think it started there. Then we started kicking off what we call market analysis, where we are looking at that once they identify those 30 cities, how do people live and work and shop um, in those cities? And what are the types of units that are necessary to meet them in the best way? Uh, it's, it would be, you know, pretty out of alignment with how people are living if we tried to stick a 300,000 square foot box into Manhattan. Um, so part of, I think, the shift in mindset at our, at our leadership level is let's not make people adapt to us. Let's adapt to um, our customers and how they are evolving and how they are evolving and how they live, work and shop to develop these additional me- touch, menu of touch points and the strategy to, to bring our stores and our units closer to them.
0: So it t- took a, a kind of a visionary in a
1: way. Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, how's it going? How, do you know much about how those planning concept stores have gone? Because there's only one in the US so far?
1: So far, it's going great. It's been well-received. Um, everyone loves to interact with IKEA. We have our store in in Brooklyn in Red Hook, um, but it's a little bit of a journey. And if you've never gone, if you've never had the, the pleasure of being on the ferry to head out to Red Hook in the summer, it's a great, great experience. But having the ability to come in, we have our home furnishings experts that are there that you can either plan something on your own or online, or make an appointment to meet with them to help you plan out those complex purchases, you know, a new kitchen, closet organization. Um, one of the sort of um, interesting things is laundry or laundry room organization in Manhattan, since so many of the units, um, of the newer units have that ability. And so it's that sort of high touch personal and highly personalized experience, um, but in a much more intimate setting. Has
0: it involved a massive shift in the logistics? Because in the old IKEA, I guess you would go and buy and stick it in your car or get it delivered or whatever. Now it's like experiencing then ordering online. Has that meant a massive expansion in industrial? How's
1: that worked? You know, we have been planning for this for a few years. And so one of the things to sort of front load um, this expansion in New York was uh, we entered into a a lease for, uh, I think it's almost a 1 million square feet, of uh, logistics space in Staten Island. So to be ready for these new units to support the existing units in the New York market in a stronger way, we did make that investment in in advance of the um, opening of these new units. So that was looking inwardly. We had no way to predict what was going to happen with COVID and the, you know, certainly exponential increase in online shopping that every retailer is experiencing. Um, But that certainly has um, been one of the things that helped us to prepare for these new types of units in that market. And we're looking to replicate that in other parts of the country.
0: So it is still all moving ahead as planned, even with the pandemic and everything that's happened?
1: As everyone is trying to understand, we're still in the middle and trying to understand if there is a, what is the next normal? I don't like to say new normal, because I think that There's some shifts that we've seen in retail that will never go back to normal, Uh, will never go back to how it was pre-COVID. I think we're still analyzing that and making the appropriate uh, analysis and and pivots as necessary. But right now, with only 50 um, standard stores in the U.S. and one planning studio, we have a lot of room to still grow. Uh, And that is still certainly our mission. It's interesting
0: that um, IKEA was able to start pivoting in this way uh, for a few years. You look at other stores and some other major, major retailers and they haven't had the same ability to adapt and adapt their real estate. For example, I'm thinking like Toys R Us. I'm thinking Barneys in New York or Lord & Taylor in New York. What do you think sets one company from another in terms of the ability to kind of read the writing on the wall and as you say, adapt for the consumer as opposed to just expecting the consumer to adapt
1: to them? I think that it is still being that curious partner in this retailing process, Um, continually analyzing the data that's available, um, watching the the consumer behaviors, not having sacred cows with how you approach uh, your business. I think the thing that IKEA has done you know, fabulously for over 75 years was, is what's now called experiential retail. And that the amazing piece of the organization is that, well, that's great, what's next? How do we continue to energize and inspire our customers? And mainly that's by focusing on them, putting them in the center and making sure that we're meeting their needs appropriately.
0: And it is hard, it's kind of human nature. You have this great idea and this great idea works for many, many years. And then when it's not working anymore, it's kind of hard to accept reality, isn't it? And change.
1: I mean, change is hard for everyone. But again, I think that's by putting the customer in the centre, by putting the co-worker in the centre, IKEA tries to stay evergreen and never stagnant and wants to continue to grow and develop. And because it's based in inspiration, how do we continue to inspire people? They have many options for home furnishing needs. What inspires people to come, you know, leave their couches, step away from, you know, their tablets or computers and phones, um, is hopefully the spark that you know will continue to make us grow and uh, be that inspirational place for people to seek home furnishing needs.
0: I hadn't really um, thought about how much IKEA really was the forefront of experiential retail.
1: It absolutely was. Our founder Ingvar Kamprad is is and was a genius um, with regard to that.
0: It is a whole experience from start to finish.
1: (laughs) It absolutely is. Uh, You you start up in the showroom, um, when you get halfway through and you're a little hungry, you can sit down and have a meal in our restaurant, uh, then finish your journey, you know, going through our market hall and then entering into the the self-serve warehouse. And at the end, you get a treat. And the aspirations, you can just imagine
0: how organized you would be if you just had those drawers.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's you know the thing that's great is that we researched. Um, we spent a lot of time researching how New Yorkers live, and it's very customized to um, those specifications. So, a four hundred square foot st- um, studio apartment. How do you how do you act, how do you optimize every horizontal and vertical inch of that space to live? Um, and we have actual apartment settings in that unit, um, modeled after act, um, real New York apartments. So. I know that some of the pre-war apartments have like bathtubs in their living rooms. We have a unit that has a bathtub in its living room. So um, people recognize uh, how they live in our unit and I think enjoy the experience as well as having sort of that one-on-one connection with our home furnishing experts.
0: So were you, were you involved in the choosing of like, say the Upper East Side location? Is, is that the choices that you make and what goes into that?
1: At that time, the real estate project manager um, who was on my team. She's now our VP of real estate development um, based on some of the successes that she had with projects. Uh, and the she was the one who sourced that location. We started looking at 30 locations around the city. Um, and then I was a part of making the final decision between the, I think it was down to maybe five or 10 um, by the time I came on board. You know, we start with a, a broader brief from our retail partners on what they need or want. Um, our real estate development team partners with local brokers um, who are experts in a particular city to help us whittle that you know to source the list and then help us to whittle that down Um, and it's a collaborative partnership between our retail team our expansion team our construction team and real estate development to make sure that the unit will meet our needs Um, and so certainly nine ninety nine Third Avenue which is where the planning studio is uh, being in that sort of home furnishings Um, area of New York City, close to the A&D and D&D buildings behind the flagship, Um, Bloomingdale's, you know, certainly felt like home. Um, It's one of the first times in recent years that we've adapted an existing space instead of building from ground up. It was a former um, um, retailer that had a very urban and industrial feel and look. Um, So we were able to certainly convert that quite easily into feeling like an Ikea. And so it's been a great location for us. So how many more do you think we could expect to see in New York of these? Oh, that that would be tipping my hand. I I certainly can't share that. (laughs) Um, But we are, you know, certainly looking to make sure that we're able to meet the needs of all of the New Yorkers in the best way possible.
0: Okay. So at this stage, we've got that one on the Upper East Side and there's um, plans afoot for Queens.
1: Yes. Queens will open this fall.
0: What's it been like through the pandemic? I mean I imagine with the level of market analysis that IKEA does, consumer behavior you wouldn't be very clear on who's buying what and where What do you know now?
1: You know, I think I think what we what we know um, our customers are loyal, our customers um, still as they began working from home, teaching from home, childcare from home. Um, looked around and recognized that they wanted to improve their living situations. And so we certainly were grateful to be a part of that. Uh, We maintained our online um, ordering process throughout the pandemic, but we did close all of our stores here in the US um, for a period of time. Um, I think the other piece is that our data, we've never been more data rich. Um, One, we have the tools to be able to collect and aggregate and analyze things in a better way. Um, But we're also taking lessons from our colleagues overseas. So we are, it's a constant sort of feedback loop as the pandemic, you know, sort of spanned the globe. Um, We were able to take lessons um, on um, how to close stores, how to reopen stores, um, how to meet our customers in the best way from our colleagues in other parts of the globe.
0: So you would say the strategy that you put in place while it is getting informed as more data is gathered, the strategy is still pretty much the same, it sounds like. You haven't halted major deals or anything like that?
1: The things that we were that were in process, we were moving forward with, we are always analyzing to make sure that this is the optimal situation. And so this COVID period has just given us that opportunity to make sure that we've you know, dotted every I, crossed every T. Um, but our ambition is still to grow. As I said, 50 units is, you know, a blip in terms of retail in the US, and that gives us the the flexibility to... We've been so deliberate with our expansion in the past. It's given us the flexibility to still um, target and go after rowing.
0: What's the past few months been like for you? I guess you're working from home.
1: It's been, you know... I think the, the, the biggest challenge is not having the opportunity to collaborate with my, my coworkers on a daily basis, those organic conversations. I think that's what everyone's feeling. The thing that we miss as a team is the travel. You know, Certainly we are analyzing deals from a desktop, but not traveling to put our boots on the ground. That's a shift for sure in, in how we approach. And so um, we're used to taking multiple trips to a market to look at sites over and over again, bringing different compositions of people to, with us. So
0: you are, as you said, you're a proud graduate of Project REAP, yes,
1: which is Chicago, Sh- Chicago.
0: I see. Okay. So um, from my understanding of Project REAP is that it had a really successful run, kind of driving diversity in commercial real estate, which goes without saying, incredibly male, incredibly white dominated. And you're an African-American woman and you have this big position, but you also came from a different world how did you make that step?
1: It's been sort of an interesting journey. I identified that litigation when I was practicing law was not for me. I enjoyed it, but I wanted to do something that was um, less confrontational, more collaborative, more creative. Um, And at that time, my husband and I had started uh, looking for our own home. um, And even after securing it, purchasing it, I continued to look at real estate and, recognizing, and real, recognizing that, gosh, you know, real estate, commercial real estate actually creates communities. And so that really drew me in, but I didn't have a direct path. I didn't come from a family where we had real estate. At that point, I'd been out of undergrad for, you know, almost 10 years or more and didn't have an idea on how to make that pivot. Um, so I began doing the work. I networked. I took classes at local universities on real estate and economic development. I volunteered with local nonprofits in my community to spur on um, commercial development um, on the south side of Chicago. Um, but still, all of those things together didn't lead to an opportunity. Um, I found out about Project Reap through some colleagues and waited patiently for them to come to New York, um, to Chicago, and was part of their first class there. And Reap. Project REAP um, introduced me to sort of the breadth of commercial real estate. By that time, I had already made the pivot to practice law. I created what I called my triangular plan. If I just leave litigation, go to real estate law, then maybe someday I can get to the business side. Um, And REAP was one of the things that helped me to do that.
0: In terms of the last few months when diversity and racial inequality has been such a, on the forefront of so many people's minds and so many Big companies are issuing statements, pledging to be better. How have you reacted to that on a personal level?
1: So there's, I think it's twofold. There's the personal and then there's the professional. On the personal side, I am an African-American woman. I have an African-American husband and two sons. And there is a personal weight of sending, you know, whenever they are out in the world, you know, there's a concern, will they come home safely? Um, we live, you know, we have a very, um, comfortable life in, a, you know, great school district and suburb, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect. There, there've been issues with both of my sons with regard to, you know, questions or statements that we've had to interpret with, for them. And we've had to have that, the talk, um, with them on multiple occasions, certainly, um, multiple times after... The, the deaths of George Floyd and then, you know, Breonna Taylor and Amad Aubrey and, and countless others. Um, so there is that weight that that sits with, with me as a, as a wife and mother um, and an African-American woman. Professionally, you know, I think that, you know, the industry is aware that there's a, a challenge with, you know, the demographics that and, and the makeup of the most senior positions. Um, I've been partnering with... Um, ICSC and and other organizations to participate in discussions and webinars to take this this topic um, maybe a little farther than we have in the past. Um, but there's, there's certainly a recognition from my peers that, you know, we have to do something. If we don't lead this change, then who will? Um, and so that's heartening. Um, but I'm also trying to do the things that are within my span of control. So within my team, challenging us to look at, you know, how do we hire, Um, making sure that we're casting a wider net. Additionally, you know, partnering with internally to look at, you know, what does our diverse supplier base look like and how do we advance those topics as well. So I have, I'm encouraged. It's not something that's new to me as an African-American woman and and going to industry associations and conferences and being one of very few. So it's something that I've known, um, what I'm encouraged by at this moment is that other people are taking that quite seriously and wanting to make a change um, and reaching out to collaborate on making that change.
0: I have heard from a few people that this feels different. Do you think it feels different?
1: Does it feel different to you? I definitely think it is. I think that, you know, the, the sharing of, um, in our organisation and, and other organisations, you know, these these town halls, these webinars where... African-American or Black employees have been able to share, um, I think, in a broader sense, to have the, the opportunity to have all co-workers be a little more open and vulnerable. This is racial inequality isn't a topic that typically isn't talked about in American corporate culture. It's sort of one of those topics that we're like, well, we don't, you know, we don't discuss those things in polite company. But if we don't talk about things, if we don't track things, Like if, if, you know, it's almost the same approach that we have to our business. If we don't track the metrics of this issue, we're never going to make progress.
0: Does IKEA um, gather metrics um, on who's working for them? I mean, is that something as a leader that you have to kind of look for and watch for?
1: Um, I think that it's a a process that's under development. Um, We've been quite vocal that, you know, human rights, that equal rights are a human right. Um, And that's been something that has been, that predates this this current sort of social movement. You know, IKEA's commitment to LGBTQ, IKEA's commitment to having a parity in female leadership in the organization, those are quite um, documented. And we're now on this journey as well as taking a look at racial equality and balance in terms of our coworker base.
0: One um, CEO I spoke to recently was talking about the problems with diversity and, and the, the challenges of getting uh, gender diversity racial diversity within the company and they were saying that I mean the biggest problems is is that people see commercial real estate and they don't see all the opportunities that are there Um, and it sounds like you've you've had this you've had a lot of success in these great opportunities
1: there are a couple of things I think you know when when companies are challenged with um, having a diverse team I think one of the first conversations is you know what are some of the Things that they can do in terms of broadening where they're sourcing candidates. You know, are they only recruiting in the same place? You know, the definition of insanity is if you do, you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Um, so, how are they broadening their their base of where they're recruiting? Are they are they looking at organizations like CREW, You know, commercial you know commercial real estate women. Um, are they looking at women in construction? Are they looking at the National Society of Black Engineers? Are they looking at Law schools and MBAs and historically black colleges and universities are they where are they recruiting? I what I'm very confident about is that I'm not a unicorn. I have many colleagues who are in amazing positions. Many of them are came through Project REAP and some did not, but they're leaders of organizations like Cedar Realty Trust. They're at Netflix. They're at Walmart. They're at um, Target. They're at McDonald's and they just need exposure, the, the companies need to look in a broader way to find, find those people. I think the other piece of it is that um, once people are in the organizations, how are you retaining? So how are you developing the talent that's there? How are you ensuring that they have uh, exposure to senior leaders and mentors and coaches? It's not enough to just bring them in the door I'm like, well, why didn't they, why didn't they stay? Um, what are you actively doing to help them to stay and grow and develop?
0: And let them know what a great, exciting career they can have.
1: It's a, it's an interesting thing. I, I've told some of my colleagues, I say commercial real estate has a PR issue um, in the sense that unless you have a family member or a close family friend who's in the business, it's hard to know all of the different facets. So REAP certainly was my first introduction. You know, and and part of that one of those first lessons was that McDonald's is actually a real estate company that sells hamburgers. I know that they won't like that, but it's true. <laughs> um, but um, how do you you know know about brokerage and finance and um, you know retailing and industrial and like there's so many facets. It's a fascinating industry that I wish I had found earlier in my career. Um, and so. You know, how do we start to tell that message? Because when most people think of real estate, they think of residential, which is an amazing you know, career and an and industry as well. But how do we start to introduce high school students, college students about the career opportunities that are in this amazing industry?
0: Angele, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Um, it's been really interesting to hear about your career and about some of the things that
1: IKEA is doing. Thank you, Miriam. It was great to speak with you as well. Have a great day.